restless. fun. Look at this sea of amazing producers and fans. Well, I'm Johanna Zorn. I'm an executive director of the Third Coast Festival, and I'm so happy to be here. So, I feel so lucky <laughs> for lots and lots of reasons, but one of them is that I get the chance to introduce Ira Glass, which is just a fabulous opportunity. Uh, of course, he needs no introduction, but you know that Ira is a producer of great accomplishment, um, but also a, not only radio, but podcasts, live events, and most recently, I hope you saw their film, A Filmmaker, Sleepwalk With Me. Mm, I was there. But for all of Ira's wonderful and well-deserved accomplishments, I have another to add to the list and that is Radio Mensch. <laughs> because Ira is one of the most generous supporters of all that is important to our radio and audio world. Independent productions, innovation at the station and network levels, and of course, near and dear to my heart, the Third Coast Festival. That's right. Woo! So, take it away, Ira. Fellow radio producers, we come together tonight because we are legion, we are on the move, our movement is growing. I learned a lot watching Mitt Romney this week. <laughs> Here's a sign of, of where we are right now as, as radio producers. In the, in the short documentaries contest that the Third Coast runs, uh, 180 people entered and one of the winners had never made radio before. He was just a guy who listened to a lot of podcasts. He listened apparently to 10 hours of podcasts each week on his commute. And you know, you listen to 10 hours of podcasts a week and you start to get in your head like, oh, it doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> and I guess, and, and the, the sound of it fixes in your head and he thought like, well, I might wanna try that. And then he made one of these and he made this story that, that beat out 177 other people. And his story is about, uh, is about the people who are on his bus when he does that 10-hour commute each week, two hours a day. For example, there's a guy who plays Angry Birds for the entire ride, <laughs> both directions, two hours a day. By my reckoning, he catapults that poor bird 3,600 times every week. It's a lot of times. He lists various, By my reckoning. He lists various other people on the bus, uh, leading to this utterly lovely very expertly executed moment. Stasian porters, clean and crisp in their uniforms. The alternative college girls with their asymmetric the haircuts. And the mature student who reads Greek mythology. And like all great cultures, we have established and determined our social norms. Most notably, in these 10 hours each week we spend together, we do not talk. There is, of course, so much to talk about. For our children have started to walk, 
Our aunties are emigrating. Our brothers have got promotions. And our cats need to go to the vets. Anyway, he goes on. That is just like expert level. His first time out. His name is Luke Eldridge. Luke, are you here yet? Are you sitting in the crowd? Right on, man. I looked for my first piece to play it so you could hear what crap it was. I wasn't that good until like three years ago. That was so calmly done, and you read in such an uncorny way, which is usually the, the sign of a beginner. And then the writing suits the reading, and if you hear the whole piece, you really don't know where he's going with it, which is also like one of the rarest things that ever happens in the radio or any other form. It's just really a pleasure, that piece. Winning, you winning the, uh, the short documentary uh, competition as a complete beginner, of course, reminded me, as I'm sure it did for many of you in the room, of the 2003 World Series of Poker. <laughs> a man named Chris Moneymaker, his real name, never having competed at a poker tournament, beat all the best poker players in the world, 839 of them that year, to win $2.5 million in the number one spot in that tournament. Luke's achievement is exactly like that, except for, of course, no money at all. But this is, this is where we are right now. Like, like people are hearing stuff and they're making interesting stuff. When, when I started This American Life uh, in 1995, one of the production problems of the show was that I had to hire people to make a show that no one had ever heard a show like it before. And I wasn't exactly sure what it would be either. And I had a feeling that there was like a thing that I thought you could do on the radio that I really loved when people did on the radio where you just get caught up in a story. And, and I just, it just seemed to me that the radio was a tool for such powerful feelings and moments and was almost never used to capture those moments. And it's, it's, it's like it was an incredibly powerful machine that was never used for the thing that it was most powerful at. It was as if like novels had been written, but they were all about the news and nobody bothered to write real novels about people who had feelings with scenes and characters and humor and, and something you could attach to as a living person on this earth. And, and in the early years of the show, like the producers who, who I hired, some of them are still with the show, Julie Snyder and Nancy Updike. Um, I remember like, they all said like, it took like a year and a half to even figure out how to do their jobs. Like nobody had jobs like these jobs. And nobody knew how to produce pieces like this because people weren't hearing many of them. And what's so striking, listening to the entries, not just the winners, but the losers, is that they're so accomplished and people really know what they're doing. And it's interesting, now, now on the radio show, when we hire people, they can do the job from the first day. Like the entire culture of radio has changed. When I first started making the radio show, it was like me and three other people who thought that radio could be interesting. And now, like, look at you. You're so beautiful. Like, it's incredible to me. And, and, and podcasting has changed things in such an interesting way. Johanna was telling me, Johanna Zorn, who runs this thing with, with Julie Shapiro, that, that the most people who have ever come to the festival is 400. And this year, it's 470. We've maxed out every hotel in Evanston and Skokie. They still had to turn people away. And, and it's because of podcasting. And Love and Radio won, won the gold prize last year. And yeah, and podcasts, podcasts make money. That's the thing. Like po the podcast is just a whole new economic model. Like I, I don't know if you guys have followed what happened with Roman Mars 
in his Kickstarter campaign for 99%. Okay, so some of you don't know. So he has this, so he has this podcast about design called 99% Invisible, which is completely wonderful and entertaining and beautifully produced the way it sounds. And, um, and he went up on Kickstarter with the goal of raising $42,000 and the money he got in was 170,477. Um, that's for a podcast with about 50,000 people who download it. Uh, and the same thing, I just ran into Andrea Seabrook, uh, NPR, former NPR political reporter. Andrea, where are you? You're somewhere here. All right, she's got better things to do. Very big, very important. Um, she, she has a new weekly podcast called Decode DC. Uh, they only have two episodes out. She also went on Kickstarter, $70,000. There is $70,000. Like, like, and then she has another fundraiser that she's doing. She's going to be at enough money to have herself and a full-time staffer, like two people paid to, to run this thing. Like, like our, our podcast uh, for This American Life, um, pot, podcasting means money. Like we go into our podcast. The last time we did it was last December. And we went on. I gave one message on the podcast. I asked once and a message that probably lasted 55 seconds. And we made, our goal was $150,000 and we made it easily from one ask. And this is very different from a, a few years ago and very hopeful, like, like, like it, you know, just five or six years ago, if you wanted to start a project, you had to go and you had to get grants and it would take forever and you had to talk people into it. You don't have to talk anybody into anything now. We're in a whole new world. You just have to be good. Like, it used to be you could be good, and it didn't matter. <laughs> now, if you can make something that's good, people will actually exist and give you money, and you can keep doing it, and you can make it your living, and it isn't just your hobby on the side. And it's, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Like, like, being good, there was no way to monetize being good. Um, you know, but now, like, your, like Chris Rock says, your first responsibility is to get big, and, uh, and then get people to give you money so you can do, do your work. And the revenue has made everything easier, at least on our show. Like, like we have a, one, of the, one of the stories that, that is a winner this year in, in the competition is one that, um, that, uh, that was on our show, and it was about Guatemala. And it's a story that would have been very hard for us to fund just five or six years ago. But the money that we make from podcasting has brought in so much revenue that we could afford to send reporters down to Guatemala on more than one trip and have a reporter, have one of our producers spend weeks, I think maybe months. Brian, are you here? Yeah. Months? Yeah. <laughs> Two months? One month? How many weeks? How many? Like three. Three months? Yeah. We didn't, did you do anything for the show for those three months? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you mixed a top or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, and, and to hire translators and fact checkers, like, like it gives us the ability to throw money at something like that in a way that, that we never would have been able to. To be able to throw tens of thousands of dollars at one story is very new for our show, and because of podcasting, and, and, and it's like, it's something that almost no organization can do is throw tens of thousands of dollars at one story, and suddenly we can. The other thing I've been noticing is that now we are living in a post-Radiolab world in radio, like Radiolab has set such a high standard for everybody, and and in all the it won so many, not all of them, but in so many of the 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 things that won this year in the in the competition, you can I feel like I can hear Radiolab happening in the backs of people's heads. Um, 
there's, there's just, I'm going to play you, like, for example, Jonathan Mitchell, whose work I really love. Um, there's something about, like, the use of sound and music and creating an environment. Um, he has this piece where um, a photographer uh, pulls up outside a stranger's house. This is, like, the first beat of the piece, and just watches through a window at this person's house at night, waiting to take a picture. And just listen to how the soundscape changes. It's so I must beautiful. have been there, you know, a while, maybe half hour. I watched for a long time, and I was fixing my camera and checking my everything. And all of a sudden, a tap on my window. I jumped to the gentleman, and he said, why are you photographing me in my house? And so I did say to him in a loud voice, I said, I'm a photographer, and I'm photographing people in their homes at night. And I just started my car and drove away. My name is Michelle Everson. I began this photographic series in 1995. That music entrance is so pretty, huh? Um, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but I don't know. I think Jonathan does this sometimes. I know Jad Abramrod does this sometimes. Where he comp he's a composer, so he composes the music. I know Jonathan does this too, composes the music that you're hearing often uh, for the scenes, which is like a whole other level of excellence that I do not even aspire to. Um, and I also feel like I'm hearing Radiolab in much simpler productions, just in the speed and entertainment value of people doing just like the everyday, I need to knock through the quotes and the script to like make this point and make the scene happen. This is another one of the winners. Uh, this is some, it's sort of a just, just describing what life is like on one of these big, uh, big ships out like a cargo ship that roams around in a very not glamorous way. They have this scene, this is kind of a newcomer on the ship who's in his first tour. Kyle's thought about quitting before. I remember one time, he's getting yelled at for cleaning out cargo holds. And... Okay, so the crew has to clean really thoroughly every time they switch cargo to keep from contaminating a load. So somebody has to go down inside the cargo hold. So you had to go down there with the hose you had to poke with a stick. You had so to... Kyle's down there. It's like a cave. It's dark. There's no air movement down there. It's got safety harness on. It's not like you have a flat surface to walk on. It's got his hose. You're dragging a hose around and getting soaking wet. He's poking around, trying to get the rocks out of the cracks. And it still wouldn't come out. And then like half of it turned out to be not even like stone. It was just like rust. <laughs> like the speed of that, you know, is so, is so like you can hear a radio lab going on in the background. They, she also handles this thing uh, in, in this documentary, you know, like one of the standard moves if you're doing a radio piece is that you have the characters give you a tour, right? You want them to show you around the space because it's super visual and you, you have some tape that isn't just them talking to you. And the way that she does this tour is so like emphatic and fast and just elegant. I felt so jealous of it because I've actually tried to do this exact scene on a boat and totally failed at it. I did tons of writing. I had tried to describe the rooms, totally screwed it up. And I heard this was like, oh, that's how to do it. Kyle's worked all morning. The load's going pretty smooth, so he can take a quick break from the deck to go get lunch. He walks down the hall, past his room, and up the stairs to the galley. The galley is the main common space on the boat. There's the TV, main source of entertainment, and chalkboard with today's menu. Bratwurst, grilled cheese, chips, fruit salad. What are you guys gonna have? Kyle walks up to the counter so Deb can take his order. Kyle, do you want fried onions on yours? Deb's the only woman on board. 
He's been a steward out here for eight years now. These are awesome, this thing. I'm gonna put them on my plate when you give it to me. <laughs> she does all the cooking, orders supplies, does the laundry. It's like being 17 people's mommy. Can you guys understand okay? Okay, all right, just making sure. Um, uh, here's another clip. This is from uh, WNYC, this, an hour, another winner this year, about people living in the aftermath of 9-11. And, uh, and just, again, the speed and fluency and the, and the layering of it, it, which gets deeper as you go into the clip. It's only about a minute of clip, but you'll hear, like, about halfway through, just the layering is so... They don't even explain what they're doing. You could tell, I'm hearing the past, I'm hearing the present. I'll just all, it's just taken for granted. It's like, this isn't even a big deal. This is just, like, normal radio production now. I met David that morning. He worked at the May Davis Group on the 87th floor of the North Tower. When their offices filled up with smoke, they took to the fire exits. Then for 45 minutes, they walked down the stairs and emerged from the building just as the South Tower fell. After it stopped, I actually thought we were dead because it was so quiet, so dark you couldn't see. Dust started to settle, we made our way out, threw up, wandered around looking for other people. I was on the 87th floor and then something hit. The building shook. And that's where I collapsed. ran into you. You were on the 87th floor of yeah. the World Trade Center? Tower one. Work up there. I'm not sure what state of mind I was in, what I was saying. But I'm covered in dust. Uh, clothes are all ripped. It's like a war zone. It's uh, it's pretty scary. And then... Is there any way I could use that to call home? Yeah. That'd be possible. I asked to use your cell phone and call my mother. Oh, it's ringing. Oh, is it? Yeah. Mom, I just want to tell you I'm alive. I'm lucky to be talking to you. I don't know where anyone is. So I don't know how I'm going to get home, when I'll get home, but... I'm, I'm alive. Okay, love you too. Bye. And also there's like a kind of entertainment value that's taken for granted. Um, and, and this is just like part of the DNA of so many shows now and so many things that people are making. It's just like they want to be entertainers. When, when our show went on the air, uh, one of the premises of it that was new, which is, it sounds ridiculous to say, was I had this feeling of like, okay, public radio, this is 1995, public radio has done a really good job at being authoritative and timely and getting the news and, you know, just like we're doing a great job at that. But somebody should do all these idealistic things of getting voices on the air and stories on the air and points of view on the air that you don't hear anywhere else but also just as aggressively see itself as an entertainment. Like the, the being an entertainment shouldn't be like, oh, if we get time, we're gonna like make it a little bit entertaining. Like the premise should be everything in it is entertaining. Every moment holds you and pulls you to the next moment. And I feel like so much work now just takes that as a given in a way that is so exciting to hear. It makes it so fun to hear. So the work isn't just thoughtful. It's like it's out to please. It's built into the DNA of it that it's out to please. And that's just as true of, you know, snap judgment as it is of 99% Invisible. 99% Invisible is such a weird show. Here's an episode where they start the show with a joke. This is the first joke I ever really noticed as a design joke. I like an escalator, man, because an escalator can never break. It can only become stairs. That's Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> All right. There would, there would never be an escalator temporarily out of order sign. Only an escalator temporarily stares. <laughs> Sorry for the convenience. 
So it starts with that, and then it goes on to this story. And I have to say, like, the levels of, of the different kinds of nerds that are being deployed over the course of this episode. <laughs> There's a guy who, who wanders around the DC, like, um, metro system, noticing the different sounds that the elevators, the escalators in the DC metro make, because it's all escalators. And he's a music critic. And so he starts to notice, like, what what they are, and in anybody else's hands, it would be so totally precious, and yet it's so not in the hands of, of this production team. So at some point he's like, no, no, the different elevators at the different stops, they make different sounds, and, and I'm gonna analyze them. It, it sounds like music. And like any good music critic, Chris started classifying the different styles of Metro Escalator. So here at Farragut North, the escalators might sound like... Whales mating, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Whereas the escalator at U Street kind of sounded like Indian drone music. And at Columbia Heights, an aviary of chrome-throated ravens taunting you as you descend into your workday. We, I love that so much. <laughs> um, and then, and then there's a thing where just like great tape is just great tape. Can I just ask? Okay, so I'm really old, so we say great tape in my office. Like, if you're too young for saying tape, what's the thing you say when you say, that was really great? You say tape? You don't say tape? You say audio. Audio sounds so, we're very adult here. Uh, does anybody else say audio? Yeah? Great sound. Like, but you got like a really great chunk of interview. You say to your friend, I got great. How many do tape? And how many do audio or sound? Wow. And do you audio or sound people just look down on us as like, <laughs> we're weak, we've refused to come into the future? I feel like we should take a vote on what word we want to do and we should try to transition, right? Like, we should try to make the jump. It's too weird. Should it be sound? Audio sounds too official. How about sound? No, because sound, it sounds, no, tape. You guys are stuck with tape. Well, here's an example of great tape. Uh, this is from another winner. Uh, this, this, is, this is the story that, um, that Radio Diaries did with, with that, with that uh, teenager who went on into the Olympics. She, she was training to be a boxer, and she was going through her Olympic trials when they did their documentary. And there are two amazing moments. And you know, like, there are different levels of good tape. Okay, so one is, the most basic kind of tape you can get right is just interview, and you get a great moment in an interview with somebody, so it's the most basic thing, it's you talking to another person. And, and in the better ones, there's interaction, you know, like there's a dynamic between the two of you that is in itself interesting. Um, in addition to getting across whatever else, there's a dynamic to it, that's one level. The second level, I feel like, is, is when you're in a scene and something is unfolding in front of you. And, and, and nobody's narrating, or maybe somebody is narrating, but, but you're watching the action happen, kind of the microphone is capturing it. And that's what these are. It's so exciting, you know, when you get it and it's like, it's there, it's, it's alive and it's in, it's in your machine. Um, so there are two phone calls in this piece that just kill. All right, come here, Russ. You gotta do 15 minutes of ice, 15 minutes of heat. You got me? Hello. <laughs> hey, Russ. Turn that phone off. Yes. I'm playing, okay? All right. Who is this boy? Uh. What? What did you do? I mean. Ain't no big deal. Dang. So you'd rather talk to the boy than be at the Olympic trials? Come on now. What kind of question is that? You know how close this thing is? Mm-hmm. 
real close. You don't need anything that's going to take your attention somewhere else. Nothing. Whatever. I like boys. Can't help it. That's cool, but just keep it platonic. What that mean? Nothing but a friendship. If you like him, drop him. Me? Ooh, nothing. Russell, you're up against a lot. When we go to these Olympic trials, you're going to be up against grown women that are stronger than you. They ain't got to go to school. They ain't got homework. All they got to do is box. These people are hungry. Well, I'm strong-minded. I'm not going to let nobody feed me off in the wrong direction. Russell, look at me. Just stay focused. You got all your life for boys. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing right here. Later, there's another phone call. You meet her dad sort of early in the thing, and she tells you the story about how he went away to, to a prison from the time he was two, for two, from the time she was two to the time he, she was nine. But he's super supportive. He's really, really sweet. And then she's about to go off and do her, her trial. She's about to do this competition to get into the Olympics, and she gets this phone call. Hello? So what's going on, Rich? Doing all right. How you doing? Um, I'm all right. I'm all right. My dad was going to come to the Olympic trials in Spokane. Dad, where you at right now? Huh? Where you at right now? Uh, down at the county. He called me, and uh, he had been arrested. The back tail light of the car was messed up, and he got pulled over, and he had warrants out for his arrest. I don't know what he did to get the warrants. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the time. Okay, baby. Bye-bye. Bye. Why are you always waiting for me to hang up for? I want to be here at your boy's last. All right, one, two, three. When I say three, go. Hang up. Okay. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. <sighs> that side really makes it. So there's so much good work being done. Like, there's so much good work being done. There's, there's such an abundance of stuff to listen to, it's hard to even keep up with it. I have a dog, and I have to walk the dog, and I don't have enough time to keep up with it. And radio people are just doing, there's, a, there's just, people are just trying stuff that's, that's interesting. The Radiolab touring show, did any of you guys see it? It was so beautiful. Like, and I feel like they invented this aesthetic for how to tell a story on stage um, but, you know, working with this dance company and, and, and the Dimitri Martin shows were especially good, but the other ones were good and Tao Win and, and just like in the lights at the end, it was just so beautiful. And then, and then, you know, on our show, we also tried to do a show on stage. We also had dancers and a comedian and musicians um, and beamed into movie theaters. And Glenn Washington and his team, the hardest working team in public radio, where they're just like, I, do, I don't even know like how they're surviving. They're turning out so much material and doing stuff on stage and doing the radio shows. It's like, and then, uh, you know, like, it's, just, it's just nice to see people trying stuff. We just came out with a movie. I love that. Um, do you guys heard that Alec Baldwin is now doing a podcast? And it's so good. It's so good. I totally, if you haven't heard it, go to the David Letterman one first. Absolutely. He does this interview with Letterman where Letterman is so frank, where he, they're like four minutes into it. And Let, he says, are you kind of just phoning it in? And Letterman's like, yeah, I'm just kind of phoning it in now. I don't work as hard as I used to. And, uh, 
it's amazing to hear somebody who's so famous that the people who are famous just see him as just another guy. Um, it's a weird format for a show. And then Alec Baldwin has a weird psychological tendency in every interview to try to get each guest to talk about some moment when they just ruined their own career through their own stupidity, often <laughs> after some bitter divorce. And the best example of that is the Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass one, where, where Herb Alpert, apparently, he, he got into this like, really bitter divorce and, uh, and couldn't play the trumpet. Like, at the height of, like, he, they sold as many records or more in the 60s than the Beatles. That's how big they were. And, um, and he couldn't play the trumpet anymore. Like, he was so upset about his divorce. And, uh, and Alec Baldwin is so, like, right there with him. And, like, and not in, like, a corny way, like, in a totally, and not, like, making a big deal out of it either. It's totally, like, you totally feel like he knows exactly where he's coming from <laughs> in this really nice way. It's, a, it's an actual, like, it's done with just a surprising amount of heart for a person who I read in Vanity Fair, he makes $400,000 an episode each time he's on 30 Rock, something like that. <laughs> That's a lot. Like, that's like Roman Mars money, you know? Um, the thing I've been thinking about a lot, I, I, shouldn't, I couldn't be, like, should I talk about this? Like, the thing I've been thinking about a lot for the last year and a half is, 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 is taking what we've learned on our show, and I think what a lot of other people are thinking about in terms of narrative storytelling on the radio, and going back and remaking the news. Um, on our show, I feel like we've been edging up to this project in one way or another for the last decade, where we've been taking on news stories, you know, in the economy and the war on terror and, and, uh, and trying to use what we learned about, about how to make a gripping story um, and, and, and apply it to these news stories. And, and they're really hard when you try to do it with the news, to find characters and scenes and, and moments that'll play in the right way and have the right kinds of story arcs. And, and so we did this experiment last May I can't tell how much of this should be about this. Like, I can, because can, can I play you guys like 10 minutes of something? Okay. Yeah? Okay. So, we did this experiment where I was just like, well, what if we just did our show as a news show? Like, and I mean, by that, I mean, I literally, we will get no tape before the week of the show. Everything that's on the show will have happened that week and we'll cover the news. Like, what if our show was an actual news show? What would that mean? And so, and so, and so we had a theory about it that, that we would do the real news. And so we sent reporters, really good reporters around, like Nancy Updike went to Cairo and Alex Bloomberg went to DC thinking there was gonna be um, congressional news. And it was the week of the first presidential debate, which is so crazy to think it was a year ago May. It was a year ago May. It was May 2011 was the first presidential debate, was the week that we did it. And there were tornadoes that had just ripped through the South and we, we did a story with that, David Kestenbaum did. And we kind of put people in place for the news and, and then did stories in our style. And then we thought also, in addition to doing the actual big news, let's do stories that are like the little personal stories that we always do, but they'll have to be about things that happened this week. And so we kind of social mediaed our way into a bunch of stories where we said to people like, what's happening to you this week? Is anything happening in your life this week? And we got a bunch of stories that way and kind of went through all the ways that you find stories to find other stories. So, so the way that it opened, and we were worried, actually, like, is there going to be any news this week? Like, we were really worried. Like, we were totally at the mercy of the news. 
And fortunately for us, the Sunday of that week, you know, we do our show, we put it out on Friday. We, hadn't, we didn't have any tape at all. We have nothing. Usually it takes us four months to put together a show. We have nothing. We're just sending people into spots, hoping that there's news. And on Sunday, there was a bit of news. We killed bin Laden. <laughs> so, so we included that in our coverage. Uh, but we opened the show with, with, uh, with, with this guy, um, <laughs> this guy named Dan Curry. And I'm just going to like, I, I have the quotes and music here. I'm just going to like just perform this for you if that's not too weird. Um, so Ableton, by the way, Ableton. That's what I'm using. Um, so so M Dan Curry on Monday of that week, he got into his car to drive across the country from the East Coast to California uh, alone. And to pass the time, he brought 30 hours of Spanish language lessons on CD which is exactly the kind of dumbass thing I would do. I'd be like, well, I'm going to be in the car all this time. Like, I should do something productive. Because he thought, like, okay, I'm going to get out of the car and I'm going to be speaking Spanish. That's his goal. <laughs> and so I reached him in his car on, on, uh, on Wednesday. Before I play this, I want to say one more thing. The other thing I think that you want to do with the news that's different that is, that, is that I feel like there's like a kind of newsy sound to the news that seems antique to me that we should destroy. And I feel like public radio isn't so bad, but on television it's terrible, where people talk like news robots versus, you know, the way that a good reporter on public radio talks. So, so, so for example, you know, like this is like, like anybody good on, on public radio, but here's Hannah Jaffe Walt like talking about like bank deregulation. You think about how institutions get their regulators, and you just think they must get assigned one, right? It's like you get assigned a boss, someone tells you who your regulator is. No. If you're a national bank, you have four choices. And maybe you knew this already, but this seemed insane to me. Financial institutions, they choose their regulators. They go regulator shopping. The sentence that I like is, maybe you knew this already, this seemed insane to me. Like, that's not the way reporters talk. That's the way people talk. You know, and I feel like it's entirely missing from the aesthetics of the news. The aesthetics of the news entirely leaves out converse, uh, kind of conversational talking, moments of humor, moments of surprise, moments of discovery, um, usually. Like usually there's no funny moment in, in a story on the news, on the actual news, and that seems very primitive to me. So in addition to all the storytelling stuff, it seems like you could be putting all that stuff back and making every story very three-dimensional and still do the news. Okay, back to Dan Curry. So now you understand the mission that, that I'm thinking. So back to Dan Curry, he's driving across the country, he's learning Spanish, I reach him on Wednesday. So I have some questions for you. Okay. Donde esta usted? Uh, oh God, um, I, I know what that means. Right, it means where are you? And the, question, the answer when I reached him was Odessa, Texas. He was just outside Odessa, Texas. And it was actually kind of a big moment for him after 14 hours of listening and practicing out loud with his CDs, he had actually just tried out Spanish for a first time with a living human being who speaks Spanish. He was ordering lunch. Well, I, I pulled up to a place and a little stand. I went and ordered uh, two pollas, uh, pollas uh, tacos and un... It, I did it all in, on Espanol uh, in un carne asada, and it should have been about four or five uh, dollars. But the girl, she was bilingual, like kind of rolled her eyes when I was talking. She said something to me in, in Spanish, 
And I said, oh, see, 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 you know. And I ended up buying $26 worth of stuff instead of getting two <laughs> chicken tacos. I got, I got eight. So the, the carne asada, what I got was a big fat of it. Quiero caliente, and I didn't know the word for sauce. I haven't learned the word sauce yet, so I said sauce, and she switched to English at that point. Wait, wait, wait. The word for sauce is salsa. Haven't you heard the word salsa? Salsa, salsa. Yeah. Oh, salsa means sauce? <laughs> I thought salsa meant salsa. I'm scared. I got gotcha. you. Look, put your feet on the pillow. I got gotcha. you. Don't let go. Sunday that week in suburban New Jersey, eight-year-old Ruby Melman went out with her mom and dad to try. This was her second attempt to learn to ride her bike. Her dad ran alongside her, holding the handlebars. Keep going, pedal, pedal. Hey, Ruby, you got to pedal. Why are you stopping? Because it's scary. Took about a half an hour for her to get it. Good. You got to pedal, okay? Let go. You're not pedaling now. And keep your eyes up, Ruby. Look forward. Look ahead. Good, 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 good. There you go. Good job. Pedal, pedal, pedal. You got it, keep going, keep going. <sighs> Did you do it? Yes. Okay, let's try it again. So I'm gonna ride around the corner. So this is the first time you're getting on a bike since yeah, when? This is the first time, oh, in almost four years, three and a half, four years. Let's see if I can. Saturday that week on the north side of Chicago, my friend Bo O'Reilly, age 56, was getting on a bike again for the first time since he had both knees replaced. All right, here we go. Here we go. All right, both legs are going. Yes. It feels okay. How's your knees? They hurt. What? I have to say we are totally a sight. There's Bo riding along with the shock of gray hair. And then there's me running after him with my microphone. And then kind of way back there is his like 60-year-old girlfriend running after us with his cane. <laughs> um, but that feels okay. A little winded, feeling it but feels all right. At Ground Zero that week on Thursday, President Obama laid a wreath and met with first responders and families of the dead. A woman named Theodosia Alexander was out on the sidewalk hoping to catch a glimpse of the president. She'd work as a temp in the Twin Towers back in the 80s and 90s, knew lots of people who worked there. Since 9-11, she had generally avoided Lower Manhattan because of that. But she came out on Thursday of that week hoping that it was going to feel different now that Osama bin Laden was dead. It's like a relief. Maybe, you know, um, it's over. Maybe I won't have dreams about it, you know. Well, I feel better right now. <laughs> I feel great. I feel like they got him. They got him. They got him. That same day on Thursday at the hospital, the U.S. forces set up at Bagram Air Base to deal with U.S. casualties in Afghanistan. There was no question that we were still, of course, a country at war. I talked to a guy named Dr. Wade Goodwin, who was one of three orthopedic surgeons there, who said that it had been pretty steady the last six months, including that week with Osama bin Laden dead. This week has been, this week has been pretty busy. Averaging probably between eight and 12 new trauma patients each day. And, and so what kinds of injuries are those? Uh, well, <clears throat> sadly, a large percentage of them are amputations uh, you know, from blast injuries, from explosions. I saw a quote from a soldier, I think it was in the New York Times, who, who was in Afghanistan and said, okay, can I go home now? 
And, and I'm wondering if, if you're hearing any of that. Uh, yeah, I, well, there's, I think there's a lot of kind of tongue-in-cheek joking about that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I guess, I guess I, I'm not certain really how much that's going to impact the reality of what we're doing over here. So much happens in one week. In the Grand Canyon that Wednesday, high school freshmen from Tucson were on a class trip. This is Lauren, and we're walking down a trail to go to the Grand Canyon right now. I know you wouldn't push anybody over the edge, but just don't even pretend to do it, okay? It's something we want to avoid, okay? Sunday in a bar in New York City, patrons raised their glasses to a bartender who ran the joint and lived upstairs till he was 90, Jack Loftus. Here, here, to Jack. This is a neighborhood where guys drank a lot and got into fights. Jack was this six foot three fatherly figure who kept things calm. This guy, Tommy Pryor, said his own dad was a big drinker who Jack knew how to keep in line. I love Jack because I saw him love my father, respect him, take care of him when my father wasn't on his best behavior. And I felt I could trust Jack to help me control my father. Anyway, so that was what we did at the top of the show, and then we went into real, actual, substantive pieces all the way through, and the pieces had a lot more, just had a lot of personality to them. So the thing that, that I've been thinking about on our show is, like, should we just do that more? We're going to try it again next month. We're going to do another episode like that, and then we keep talking. I don't know if we'll ever do it, of just spinning that off as a separate show, where, uh, where we would do This American Life, and then we would do a kind of This Week thing. So... If you guys have any advice, <laughs> or if any of you are massively skilled and need a job both, please see me after the presentation. Um, <laughs> the lion's going to farm? Okay. So I started, I started in radio when I was 19, about 100 yards from where we're all sitting right now. Uh, I, I worked at WNUR. The, the college radio station here, and I learned to edit uh, tape, and I learned to make promos, and then after my freshman year at Northwestern, I went to NPR in Washington and talked my way into an internship at NPR, which I had never heard of or heard on the air at all. Uh, it just seemed like they might have a job. Um, and, uh, and at that time, you could kind of talk, talk your way in. And, uh, and, and like being here today, I'm just struck at like just how different everything is. Um, you know, like, like when I was there, like the first, the first leap to make was just to even to have the experience of hearing radio that was good. Like, like I, I, my very first job as a production assistant was I worked for a, a guy whose job at, on NPR's staff was to invent new ways to do radio documentary. That was his actual job. His name was Keith Talbot. And then a, a lot of the older people who, who've come through public radio, Jay Allison and Katie Davis and uh, the Kitchen Sisters, uh, at one point or another, t touch base with this guy, um, and uh, and uh, I, like I wouldn't be in radio if it weren't for that guy. Half of everything I know, he taught me. And the first show I worked on was 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 this guy named Joe Frank, who would tell these stories. And I remember, like, I didn't even know, like, I, I had never heard, I had never heard radio that was good. Do you know what I mean? Like, here's here's Joe Frank from the era that I was listening. This is kind of a crappy recording, but. Then, I'm riding up the elevator of my building. A 
I'm standing there, sharing the small space with a terrific-looking girl. It's another I time. I shy, uncomfortable. I scratch my head. I sigh. I gaze up at the numbers of the floors lighting up one after another. Then I feel her eyes looking at me and the blood rushes to my cheeks. I glance back at her and she looks away at the elevator inspection sticker with its row of signatures. She's beautiful. She has dark eyes and long brown hair and she's wearing jeans and a polo shirt. She seems like the kind of person I'd really like. Okay, so there's a lot of like 1970s sort of gaping at women in a way that nobody would do today, but... The elevator goes higher and higher, the floor numbers lighting consecutively. We stand there silently, not looking at each other, fidgeting. I glance at my watch. She rummages through her bag for something. I reach into my pocket and draw out a scrap of paper, which I unfold. It turns out to be a cash register tape from the A&P. But I scrutinize it as if it's very important before putting it back in my pocket. Anyway, like, just like, you just think, like, why am I still listening to this? <laughs> and yet you can feel it's going somewhere, right? And, uh, and like, all of his work had that quality. I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like, I don't even know what he's doing. But I just want to learn how to do that, that forward pull, minus the sexism, the forward like pull of the whole thing. I was just like, I don't even know what that is. And things are so different. I feel like so many people have heard stuff on the radio that's actually good, that enables them to dream of making stuff. And, and, uh, and the technology now is so cheap. And you can edit and mix. And you know, just like everything, everything is so much easier. And you can distribute yourself. And you don't need permission from somebody to actually make your work and get it out. Like, it's a very beautiful moment. And I'm so like grateful that the Third Coast Festival exists. I'm so grateful that we can come together as a group, you know? Like, like, like looking at you guys, like, I want to be part of the group, you know, like, 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 it's important to have like a place where you can go with other people. Like most of our jobs are isolated, except for like our little group that we make it with. Like, it's nice to get out and be with other people. And I just am very excited for our shared dreams and goals that bring us here as peers to make the world better, as corny as that is. You know, like, like you can't do this to make money, because if you do, you're going to be very disappointed. You know, like, you, the only reason to do it is because you want to make something that'll be nice. And, uh, and we're not alone. Like, look around. We are on the move, people. We are inventing something new. We are better than the media that we compete with. We are more enjoyable for the audience. We are more emotional. We are more interesting. And we are legion. We are growing. <laughs> This is the place that it's happening. God bless you. And God bless the Third Coast Festival. Yeah.